Hey crew, it's your Captain Caliban speaking, and I wanted to let you know I talked for so long with today's guests, Maria and John Tenuto, that there was no way it was all going to fit into one episode. So be sure to tune in next week for our supplemental episode, where we'll have over 30 more minutes of chat from my conversation with them about Ricardo Montalban, Spy Kids, the script-to-screen development of Space Seed, Seduce and Destroy, Eugenic Superman style, and of course, Ricardo Montalban's chest. And let me tell you, don't believe what you hear. Like Benny Russell said, it's real. So please join us next week for that. And in the meantime, you can catch up with us on Facebook and Twitter at EIST pod. And you can join our crew at patreon.com forward slash EIST pod. And with that, let's get underway. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I want to know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I want to know. What you're feeling Tell me what's on your mind Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and you can go or you can listen to this show, but do it because it is what you wish to do. I'm joined on this episode by Maria Jose and John Tenuto. Maria and John are sociology professors at the College of Lake Country in Grays Lake, Illinois, and they've extensively studied the history of Star Trek and employ Trek and other pop cultural examples in their classes. They've also given presentations on their work at Star Trek conventions. They are regular contributors to StarTrek.com, and they are featured in the new Netflix series, The Toys That Made Us, where they discuss the history of both Star Wars and Star Trek and the toys and collectibles associated with them. John and Maria, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Permission to come aboard granted. Today, we'll be talking about Space Seed, the 22nd episode of the first season of Star Trek, the original series, an episode that's probably best remembered for providing the seed, if you will, for the sequel Trek film, Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan. But it's also an episode that represented, in many ways, the best of what Trek had to offer as it reached the end of its first season. It's an episode that introduces an enduring villain, but it's also one that features standout performances, defining character moments, and detailed, thoughtful world building that would serve as story fodder for the next 50 or more years of Trek stories. And much of that can be attributed to the collaborative efforts of talented people working under restrictions that serve to inspire their creative Activity. And a little soft Corinthian leather never hurt. But we'll get to that later in the episode. First of all, let's talk your backstory. How did you become Star Trek fans? Well, I started um, Star Trek back in the 70s during uh, reruns. I was alive when the original show was on, but a little too young. And uh, I became a fan through, uh, initially actually through the animated show and the toys. Sure. Got me inspired uh, to to love Star Trek. And then from there, it was... uh, uh, watching the reruns and eventually, you know, getting into the films and, and into the fan community. Sure. And I became a Star Trek fan through John. I was uh, working on my master's thesis while he was catching up on Deep Space Nine. Okay. And I hear I hear these names like Paw Wraiths and <laughs> <laughs> and I would, you know, peek, you know, poke my head out and say, oh, what's that? What's going on? And I was just sucked right in. Sure. Even then, John, you must have had a, a something of a collection going of uh, Star Trek toys. Oh yeah, we were. That was uh, before we were married. We we're married about 
20 years now. And that was uh, a long time ago. I didn't have a room in my uh, house. I was still living with my family at that time before we were married. And uh, But I had a large collection. A lot of it was in boxes. And now that we we're married, we have it out and we have a Star Trek collector's room. And, uh, uh, you know, it was played at our wedding. We had Star Trek music at our wedding. So we're, we're, a, we're a Star Trek family. Sure. <laughs> How did you light on the idea or the practice of using uh, pop cultural examples such as Star Trek in your classes? Well, that actually stemmed from, um, you know, I, I think when you start teaching, uh, you, you think of your, the best teachers that you had and then you try to combine them and, and think about how you can, you know, take what they inspired you to do and give that to the next group. And I had had a teacher uh, named Richard D. Cordova, who uh, passed away uh, a few years after I had had him as a teacher. He's a young man. He had cancer, unfortunately. But he mm. he used Superman uh, in his classes, mm. and th- that really caught my attention. He did a really great uh, discussion about uh, Superman 2 and gender and um, and uh, feminism, and, and it was a very interesting discussion. And so that began, that, that planted the seed, if we're going to keep using <laughs> space seed. Yeah, I suppose so. Uh, and I started uh, doing that in my classes, and, and Maria Jose does the same in her classes, too. And it's just a really great way to teach by by using um, a popular culture that students are familiar with. Then you can kind of bring them to the sociology that they, that they may be unfamiliar with. Sure. What are some uh, social themes uh, that you use Star Trek to teach? What are some of the classic themes that Trek tends to tackle? In my deviance class, I show the enemy within uh, to talk about the uh, talk about good and evil, mm-hmm. and how it's kind of like the idea that you shouldn't tamper with your biology, with your DNA, because it could make it shapes who you are. Mm-hmm. So Kirk needs his dark side, even though he doesn't like it and he doesn't want it. He talks about um, it's a thoughtless, brutal animal, and he. He doesn't want it, but he realizes through Bones and through Spock that he needs it. It helps him to be a great captain. And so um, we explore those ideas in, in the Deviance course. And you use, and she uses uh, um, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy for, to teach Freud, id ego, and superego. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, uh, somatology, yeah. And then I use it more for the this, this social themes, whether it happens to be in social problems. I do a section on environmentalism and par- particularly look at whaling. And, of course, we have Star Trek Four for that or even use um, Star Trek Five a lot for environmentalism, kind of the opening five, six minutes of the film where you have uh, Nimbus Three, which is a real world location called the Owens Dry Bed Lake in uh, California, and then you juxtapose that with the beautiful, you know, um, El Capitan, and 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 uh, and what you know, sort of what we could do, and what we what we could do either way, you know, with the environment, good or good or bad. And I, I think even though Star Trek Five isn't really about that theme, that idea I think is in the beginning of the film. And uh, I like to use that. But, you know, obviously Star Trek, Star Trek's great. I mean, we love Star Wars, too, but Star Wars doesn't lend itself. Star Wars is a little more, um, if you want to talk about religion, um, there isn't as much sociology in that. Star Trek is Star Trek is sociology. It's just sociology in a different way. Right. Um, it, It doesn't do it through. Um, the you know through the sort of scientific lens that you would as a, as a researcher, but it does it through the sort of theoretical end of of uh, of what sociology is all about. 
Can you tell me more about your theory of the 20-year nostalgia cycle? Well, you know, if you take a look, if you want to understand uh, uh, a culture, there's a type of sociological theory called symbolic interactionism. And the idea is if you want to understand people, you have to understand their their cultural items, their art, their their entertainment, their sports, their music, whatever it happens to be. And that's how you can you can kind of understand people through those through the through the symbols that they use, whether it's language, you know, if you use swear words, for example, you compare swear words, it tells you what people think is dirty or wrong or bad, right? Sure. That's why they make swear words. So right. um so the twenty year nostalgia cycle came out of that idea of us trying to understand well what how does America function? And and what we had noticed was uh uh, particularly growing up in the 70s, I noticed that a lot of 70s popular culture was 50s based. Uh, you had a Happy Days and right. Laverne and Shirley and even MASH, you know, and uh, Godfather has sequences that are set, uh, you know, 20 years before the 70s. And and so uh, Greece, all of that. And so I, 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 the, the idea kind of was there even back when I was a kid. But but starting to think of how America, America tends to be nostalgic in 20 year waves. So when you take a look at the, um, the toys that we have or, um, or the films or the TV shows that are resurrected, um, not everything fits that pattern. Sometimes we're 30 years, but for the most part, we're 20 years nostalgic, partially because there's a generational difference, you know, 21 years or so, uh, is considered a generation. And, um, so, you know, you have a generation of parents now, who 20 years ago were kids and they want their kids today to maybe share the same kind of childhood experiences they had from 20 years before. Sure. So um, every single time we you know, see a, an announcement about a new TV show or a, a redo of a TV show, a remake of a film, um, we're always surprised at how many of them tend to be in that 20-year wave. And Star Trek fits into that too, right? Star Trek comes oh, back. Absolutely. Right. You know, uh, in 20 year waves from from, you know, particularly when you have the last kind of the last um, original film to the time that you have the J.J. Abrams film is about 20 years. Yeah. I suppose it's a reflexive thing, too, that just creators grow up enjoying something. And then when they reach a point where they can produce something, they are looking back perhaps to their influences um, a guy that grew up watching Battlestar Galactica wants to make a remake of Battlestar Galactica, you know, 20 years later when he's in the entertainment industry. Absolutely. Sure. You think of something like, you know, part of it is too long lasting characters. I mean, there there might be something to a technological dimension to that, too, because um, I've always thought that was true with Superman. So you have Superman invented in the 30s. You have TV coming into its own in the 50s, so you put Superman on TV. Mm-hmm. And then when we have the special effects of technology in the 70s to do Superman on the big screen, it comes into the big screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then 20, almost exactly 20 years after the last Christopher Reeve movie, you get um, you know Brandon Routh because now we have CGI capabilities. So <laughs> right. you, you almost get this um, you know riding a wave too. I think of the uh, of a technological. 20-year advancement as well. That's interesting. How do you think that um, new technology such as streaming and even VR and things like that will project themselves into the future? What can we look forward to looking back on in another 20 years? Well, it's funny. I think, you know, if you take a look at something like Discovery, um, even the format of Discovery and the way that, not just the the, the special effects technology, but I think the the arc-based nature of it, even though they're not sort of dropping all of the episodes 
on the same day. It, it, it is very much in the Netflix, you know, arc based. You really should watch them all in one sitting, you right. know. Uh, have vibe to it, and that's very much a, a reality of the streaming world, uh, where things can be more on demand than they would in in the analog era when you know uh, you had to have a signal beam to your house to to watch TV. Um, you know, if I had to guess with the future, which is always dangerous, but I think we're going to move away from screens. I think that'll be the next big. Um, it's probably already happening to some degree, but I think the next big thing will be the the removal of the tether of the screen and that somehow we'll be able to generate screens ourselves um you know through technology we wear on our wrists so in class i'll be able to literally pull up a uh you know a a map or pull up a, a an image using like two devices on my wrists and i'll just go shoot and you know uh and and it'll appear in some sort of holographic form and i also think you're going to have integrated more, much more integrated technology so everything will be voice command i think the idea of typing and touching that's all going to go away too so it'll everything will be alexa or siri okay a uh, uh, fascinating and exciting way to watch the bachelor in the future <laughs> <laughs> on my i'll watch it in class real fast i just you can't hide your screen though that way you know that's the problem yeah uh, other than the fact that it's a classic episode and it's a pretty entertaining one at that why did you choose space seed to discuss on the show today the argument that we usually make is that wrath is the is the most important star trek ever produced because mm-hmm. if it had not succeeded the way that it did and it, and it did spectacularly i mean it opened as the biggest film in all of history. I mean, it beat Empire Strikes Back. It had the largest opening weekend in the history of cinema mm-hmm. uh, when it opened on June 4th, 1982. Uh, but um, had it not been successful, I don't know that we would have had Star Trek again. Or if we did, it certainly would not have come in the same format as as we as we have seen. It wouldn't have had that history. And so, um, and Wrath of Khan, of course, wouldn't exist without Space Seed. So in many ways... Uh, Space Seed is the, the most important, may, may or may not be the best episode, but it was it's certainly the most important episode of the original show ever produced f- because it leads to Wrath of Khan, because of the influence Wrath of Khan had um, on the history of the franchise. Sure. And in your work, you've had the amazing opportunity to study the archives of both Nicholas Meyer uh, and Gene Roddenberry, which I'm sure gave you a lot of insight into the development of Space Seed. Yeah, you know, it's, it was funny. We started with Wrath of Khan uh, mostly because we were fascinated with the fact that that film had been produced with such incredible limitations of time and budget and and just the history of it. There's... there's um, there's different trains of thought on this, and I and I never hate to say the definitive word is this or that, but um, you know, Wrath of Khan was produced. It was initially produced under the idea of it being a television movie, and I know some people, even some researchers, disagree. But we have memos that really show that. That I mean, they're they're very specific that this was a TV movie of the week initially. Um, the budgets were made for TV movie of the week. They did a budgetary comparison, TV movie of the week to film. And so the idea that this thing starts off as a, uh, at least in the very initial phases as a TV movie of the week and then becomes, uh, you know, such a classic science fiction major motion picture just fascinated us. And, and the idea of all these really talented behind the scenes people um, creating the characters and the special effects technology in the story, despite having budget and time and special effects uh, and technology limitations uh, on them. Just something that really fascinated us. And uh, 
that's really our goal. Our, our, our goal is so that when, whenever we speak at a convention or at a talk, we want people to be able to go home and watch the film again and not only appreciate the film, but when the credits roll, be able to say, ah, that there's Gain Rescher and here's what he here's what he actually did. Here's how he contributed or here's. You know, here's Carrie. Oh, Carrie Wilbur. Now that name means something. Um, I can put a, a face and a contribution to that name. Uh, when when the credits roll, we want the credits to actually be something that's a living, breathing thing for people. Yeah. And on the subject of having constraints and restrictions, Nicholas Meyer came into that project and he thrived under all of the restrictions, really. I mean, he came onto a property that had you know, 20 years of cultural cachet and there was tension between Roddenberry and the studio and you had stars that didn't want to come back and there were several wildly diverging, you know, drafts of the script. And he took all of those elements in like 10, 12 days, he turns out a script that ultimately becomes Star Trek II, the one we know, and it sets a direction for Trek going forward. And as you said, in a lot of ways, like saves Trek. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, I, we, you can't overstate Nicholas Meyer's importance to, you know, I say if there's a Mount Rushmore of Star Trek, <laughs> uh, of course, you have Gene Roddenberry's face on it and you have uh, Harv Bennett and you have um, Michael Piller and you have Nicholas Meyer. Sure. Uh, um, and, and, and I think that and, and, and I think Jerry Taylor, too, deserves to be on the Mount Rushmore uh, because they're, they really and, Brand, and Rick Berman. Um, is, now we're, getting, now we're, we're going now all the way around faces, the mountain. <laughs> now we're adding more faces to it. Yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, I really, uh, you know, Nicholas Meyer really had a, I mean, when you think about the fact he's, he's in his early thirties, he has not even directed a whole lot of films up to that point. He had only really directed one movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to come on to, uh, you know, uh, to feel that pressure of in essence, saving a franchise. Um, and maybe it's good that he came in without the reverence, you know, because right. I could see that being very devastating to a person coming in who who had like a long association or an emotional connection to it, but yet he understood it. He he knew that the heart of that show was always the charm of the characters and um and even though he didn't know Star Trek, he understood Star Trek and that was vitally important. And the way that he came up came to it, we have covered uh Wrath of Khan previously on a on a show last year, but the the way that he came to it was so interesting in that he said, "Well, let's look at the military aspects. I see this as you know Horatio Hornblower in space, not realizing that that was Roddenberry's original kind of pitch or sort of concept for the thing." Yeah, I mean that just I think is a, a the, the the best example of how he understood what what Star Trek was and 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 that and that really that it had a metaphorical uh, quality to it and that it was. You know, and also I think important that it is us. I think that that's you know something about Star Trek that makes it different than say Star Wars. Star Wars isn't us. Star Wars happens in another galaxy, and right. we can relate. We can relate to those characters and imagine, and they can become our our role models. But but in Star Trek, these these are our grandchildren, right. and 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 the and what we do here has consequences if we're ever going to actually get to that kind of future. And I think by seeing it as having a, a connection to the to the to the to the sort of exploratory and military um, uh, aspects of things like the Coast Guard or the the British Navy or whatever it happens to be, um, I think that that really grounds Star Trek and that he understood that was was again really important. Yeah, that's fascinating. 
Well, we're talking about the original series episode, Space Seed. As I mentioned, it was the 22nd episode of the first season of the original series. It first aired on the 16th of February in 1967. The teleplay for the script was by Gene Kuhn and Carrie Wilbur from a story by Wilbur. And Carrie Wilbur was a television writer and journalist who had worked for the Toronto Globe and the New York Times. He was a television writer in the 50s, and he wrote for uh, many shows that you'd know, such as Bonanza, Lost in Space, Tarzan, and The Time Tunnel, for which he uh, reputedly contributed more episodes than any other writer for that show. And with the time tunnel showing up on MeTV and other nostalgia outlets, this might be the time to strike as far as getting my time tunnel podcast. Oh, that's great. I mean, I, I, I love I love uh, those nostalgia channels because when you watch them, you, you really see uh, you get a, it gives you almost a complete picture of whatever show you're into, whether someone loves Lost in Space or Star Trek or right. whatever you watch Mission Impossible. You're like, hey, I know half the people on that show that are guest starring because they're right. from Star Trek. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I want to reap that nostalgic return, so keep an eye out for the Time Tunnel podcast coming to you soon. Uh, let's see. Uh, it was directed by Mark Daniels, who was a prolific director of the original series. And speaking of most contributions, he's tied with Joseph Pevney for the most episodes directed of the original series. The star date for this episode is given as 3141.9. And your assignment, John and Maria Jose, is, if you can, to give me a 25-word synopsis of Space Seed. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Um, it has to be exactly or less than. Uh, do your best. <laughs> I'm gonna be I'm gonna be like my students and ask, can I write less? Yeah, than right. Me? Clarification. Simon. Well, I would say uh, a beginning. My 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 synopsis of the episode would be uh, Captain Kirk uh, meets his Joker, mm. uh, and and uh, and the the greatest villain uh, in the Star Trek pantheon, and and in doing so, we we learn about our favorite characters. I think that's pretty succinct. Uh, this is the point in the episode where I provide usually some interesting facts from memory banks about the episode, but I'm not going to be telling you guys anything you don't already know. So feel free to join in here or correct me if necessary when I get anything wrong. Uh, this is the first mention of the eugenics wars in continuity, which were originally equated with World War III. That was later retconned once we'd actually reached the 90s. We had Seinfeld and Pogs and Bill Clinton playing the saxophone, but we didn't get World War III. So that date was moved to 2026 for later stories such as Star Trek First Contact. And the eugenics wars themselves, which were also absent from our 90s, were recast in continuity as more of a, a secret conflict. Although I think their effects were pro possibly seen in 90210. Those are some good-looking kids. <laughs> Genetically superior. Uh, you can read all about that era and the early life of Khan in former guest of the show Greg Cox's two-book series, The Eugenics Wars, The Rise and Fall of Khan, Noonie, and Singh. Uh, something else that First Contact retroactively changed about the story is that the discovery of warp travel is established as being in 2063, of course, in the movie First Contact, instead of 2018, as MacGyver's reports in this episode. And of course, this episode features Ricardo Montalban in the role of Khan. Uh, I believe the casting of Montalban came from Joseph D'Agosta, who's the casting director for the series and several other Desilu and Paramount shows, such as Mission Impossible, Mannix, and The Lucy Show. I'm wondering, was that seen as a controversial choice at this time for the role? No. We had the um, the privilege to talk to Joe D'Agosta on the phone, and we asked him about the casting of Montalban, and he said that Roddenberry wanted him to hire the best actor regardless of who they were and Montalban had the physique he had the acting ability he um would be a good rival for you know Bill Shatner's Kirk sure. 
And uh, so they changed the character to suit the actor. I wanted to put in really quick that uh, the Khan character had a record number of costume changes for a male performer on the show as he wore five different costumes over the course of the episode. And I love that story about <laughs> Joe DeCosta just being like, OK, no, really, what's your what's your chest measurement? Oh, no, really? That's it? OK, wow. Impressive. I was trying to think of who who would have been the most costume changes for a female uh, on Star Trek. And I was kind of running through my mental Rolodex. And all I came up with was maybe Susan Oliver in in the cage because she's being so many different uh, people. I think that's the probably, yes, a very safe bet. Yeah. Uh, you know, I obviously Uhura had had a couple of costume changes in Plato's stepchildren, but I don't think anywhere near. I think she may have just had two. Right. Uh, which would not have been uh, a lot. Marlena Moreau might have, if we if we count her both universes, I suppose. Okay. She might have had two or three. Um, sure. I think two two seems about the average, right? I mean, you'll have like the Romulan commander in her costume and or her military outfit, and then her more seductive, right? Something more comfortable, clothes. yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think you're right. That 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 makes sense. And having, uh, you know, we're talking about having uh, the Mount Rushmore. I'd like a few more uh, faces added. I mean, you could definitely add Gene Kuhn in this case and uh, DC Fontana for all the work that they did on scripts. Um, sometimes receiving credit, sometimes just doing their jobs, uh, getting those out. And also, um, maybe if not on the mountain, maybe name the gift shop after him, but definitely uh, Robert Justman as the guy who, as you mentioned before, budget kept things on track and went, yeah, we can't do a keel hall sequence. That's just not going to work. you got to bring the budget down here. Yeah, there's a great memo uh, by um, by uh, Justman on this. He, he, you know, Kuhn loved the the proposal by Wilbur, he, he called it the best proposal that they had received up until uh, that point. And he was very excited about the possibilities of, of Space Seed. Um, Justman, not so much. Uh, J- Justman has, um, he, he, he likes it. He thinks it's imaginative, but he calls it more Buck Rogers. Right. Um, and and he, he wants to know, he he really liked what they did with Charlie X and he and in and in the memo he basically says why can't we do more Charlie X and less Buck Rogers basically and then he starts talking about the cost of this thing and just <laughs> he compares the cost to the very first draft of City on the Edge of Forever which would have been enormously oh, expensive yeah. <laughs> right if you, if you read the IDW comic book you can see what the original idea would have been and how expensive that I mean that would have been a major motion picture rather than a, an episode and um uh, or could have been anyway. And so, um, yeah, Justman was what, but Justman was, was that great combination of creativity and practicality. And I think that that's something that a lot of those, uh, original Matt Jeffries, uh, William, uh, where Thice, they had that real world kind of practical, how do we solve this problem? But they were all really just incredible artists mm-hmm. who brought to the table, um, you know, just uh, obviously a world changing um, uh, designs and ideas and, and imaginations. In fact, Mary Jo has a, I, um, we were talking about the costumes earlier. Um, and she had noticed something about the costumes with the, with the uh, designs of them. Oh, the ovals, the theme of the ovals. You see that in the first outfit that Khan's wearing the mesh mm-hmm. with um, this, it's like circles or the, double helixes and a DNA. And then you've got that in the red jumpsuit with, you know, by the neck and then the jacket that he wears. 
And there's a little nod to that in the film Into Darkness. Okay. Um, when, when the father's visiting his daughter in um, the hospital. Yeah, his jacket has the little circle. You know, the, the Thice used um, little circles or, or Mary Jo said oh they lose they, and it was interesting those look like dna helixes in a way um and any any new costume of cons from space seed has those helixes or circles on them, interlocking uh chain circles and um because five of the five costumes he wears two we saw before uh one is an engineering outfit and uh a red red shirt although he doesn't die um <laughs> and uh and sort of the blue blue hospital uh, outfit that he wears we've seen those before but the three that are original to him in that episode are all with those helixes and then and then you do see that in into darkness they did a good job in into darkness um with the clothing as a hint and so you have that those double helixes on the father and then you also have you know when khan is on the klingon world or uh, john Her- john harrison is on the klingon world um uh, he has a jacket on, and the, the the collar of that jacket is the same as the collar worn by Montalban and Rathacon uh, in his costume. So, yeah, there's a lot of fun little uh, inside. I mean, when they filmed Into Darkness, they filmed the name was not Harrison. They filmed it as Erickson. Hmm. And you can see that on some of the deleted scenes. And then they dubbed over Harrison Okay. Uh, on top of that. I think they might have realized that it wasn't much of a secret if you named him Erickson. I know that um, Carrie Wilbur originally sort of wrote this script or had this idea for um, when he was writing on Captain Video and his Video Rangers, which is not a podcast I think I could get off the ground at this point. I'm not sure there's a lot of fans left of that. But the idea that there would be um, like ancient Greek people who are cryogenically frozen and then wake up in the future of Captain Video and they have these, you know, ancient Greek sort of superpowers and that sort of gets turned into him being a criminal, but then later having the aspect added of, oh, he's genetically engineered, which must have been a really exciting sort of idea for people in the 60s. Yeah, that was all that was really very, very close to filming. That was all in those um, really Roddenberry is the one that kind of hand writes in the idea of genetic genetic Superman or genetic ideas. Um, and and, you know, Kuhn, though, Kuhn is the one that recognizes that he needs to be bigger than he than he was in both the outline and and in, in Wilbur's first draft because part of the problem was that it was very the they kept alive um, the captain of the sleeper ship uh, which was always named Botany Bay uh, even from the very uh, initial um, uh, outline but initially it had a hundred criminals on it and uh, it had six crew and one of the crew was going to survive. Uh, and his name was Henderson. Mm. And um, and so a lot of Space Seed's original kind of conception was kind of Erickson constantly breaking out of the brig without anybody knowing it uh, <laughs> and like and, and trying to and then eventually killing Henderson to keep the secret of who he actually was. Sure. And and it was very, very convoluted. And, and it was Kuhn that kind of recognized we need to get rid of this Henderson guy because this is just, you know. It's it's straining credibility. This guy is like able to, you know, if he's going to leave the ship, he doesn't need anybody. I mean, if he can leave the brig, he doesn't need anybody, right? Right. Um, but he really begins uh, when he when he's er- Harold Erickson. He's really just a criminal. And even in um, the October twenty sixth uh, draft, the the sort of 
uh, the last version that that Wilbur uh, uh, Kerry Wilbur writes, um, he's still kind of just a criminal. He doesn't necessarily have any biological, um, uh, you know, superiority. Mm-hmm. But what I thought would have been amazing and was never explored is one of Roddenberry's handwritten notes is that Khan would not like would hate Spock <laughs> because Spock was a half breed. <laughs> right. And that and that him being genetically superior and genetically pure, he would almost have um, almost a, a, a fascist attitude towards Spock okay. and see Spock as an inferior. And that's in Roddenberry's notes, but it, they never really did anything with that. In fact, they didn't do anything with that at all. Well, we can get to Khan's kind of shades of fascism um, in a little bit. Uh, I want to talk about Madeline Rue really fast, of course, who plays uh, Lieutenant Marla McIvers. Um, she'd started in over 20 films during her career, was a frequent guest star on TV shows in the 60s and 70s, and had a recurring guest role on Murder, She Wrote in the 80s. And it's a fun fact that uh, Ricardo Montalban and Madeline Rue were in an episode of Bonanza together uh, earlier in the 60s, where... Uh, she plays his wife and she's killed and he goes off seeking revenge for the death of his wife, which is awfully sim- similar to the plot of <laughs> Star Trek Wrath of Khan. It's very similar. It's a 1960s episode called Day of Reckoning. Oh. Um, and we had actually asked Joe D'Augusta, did, did he know that, that they had already played sort of husband and wife together right. in, in Bonanza? And he said, no, he didn't know that. And had he known that, he would have not cast the two of them okay. together. Okay. All right. Interesting. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, Rue was uh, diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, sclerosis in 1977 and was confined to a wheelchair for the last part of her career. And her character of Marla was originally in the draft of Wrath of Khan. But when Harve Bennett and the production learned of her condition, they wrote the character out because she would not be able to reprise her role. And speaking of wheelchairs, uh, Matoban himself, unfortunately, needed a wheelchair in his final years due to a back injury that he suffered while filming across the wide Missouri in 1951. And in the later seasons of DS9, and I didn't know this and it fascinated me, apparently the writers kicked around the idea of having Matoban reprise his role as Khan on the show. But the plan was scrapped when they learned that the actor's health would, would not permit him to appear. Right. Ricardo Matoban, um, even though he's confined to the wheelchair, he's using a hand bike every day and he's really building up his upper body strength and so another question we always get is is that his chest and (laughs) yes that was his chest he really um you could watch fantasy island and there's episodes where he's swimming in the ocean and you know he's topless and you can see that is indeed his chest and so um the director of spy kids robert rodriguez um, was inspired to um, to create the character that way because of the way Matsuban still carried himself even in a wheelchair and the strength that he had. Yeah, that's really his, ask uh, Robert Rodriguez, ask Joe D'Agosta. They both can tell you that's his that's his real yeah. chest for real. That's his, that's his chest. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, I, if we had only if they had only had had the technology that they have today. When they were making uh, Deep Space Nine, it's possible he might have been able to reprise his role, kind of like he does in the Spy Kids films where they have him walking around, but obviously in, in, in a CGI sort of format. Sure. And, uh, it, it, you know, it, he's, he's, he, is, he is so much that role. I think uh, some of the reaction people had towards uh, Into Darkness, part of that may have been the fact that it, it's very hard to replace Maltaban in that role. It's very hard to imagine anyone else in that role, no matter how good an actor they are. 
Uh, this is the only appearance by John Winston as Chief Kyle, Transporter Chief Kyle, in which he has no dialogue. He gets KO'd immediately by Khan. And this is also, speaking of the transporter, the episode that establishes that Dr. McCoy does not like the transporter and having his atoms scattered around. I wanted to check with you. I've always heard this urban legend, and I assume that you're going to know the answer to this, that Khan Noonien Singh was partially named because Gene Roddenberry had a friend that he was trying to make contact with. Yeah, um, that's that is true. Um, the original name that Montel, uh, sorry, that Roddenberry when he when he takes the Ragnar Thorwall character and wants to Montalbanize him, <laughs> that's the word. <laughs> um, he names him Sybil Khan Noonien is the original first uh, version of the name. Um, then DeForest Research, no relation to DeForest Kelly, but a, a research company that they used. Uh, named DeForest Research made a suggestion or recommendation that, you know, if if we're making him a Sikh and and we're going to be consistent and ethnically sensitive, really, you can't have the name. Um, you need to put the name Singh in there. And so they had Govin Badahir Singh was going to be his name, okay. uh, in which case then uh, Roddenberry kind of splits the difference and calls him Khan Noonien Singh. Sure. Um, so he, he consistently puts Noonien back in there. And then, of course, very similar sounding Noonien Sung uh, for Data's creator. Right. And uh, Roddenberry tells the story that he, he did that because he had had a friend that he had met um, whose name was Noonien. And he had hoped that his friend would hear this very unusual name or someone would hear it and sort of make a connection between that episode and the writer or the producer of that episode being Roddenberry and that maybe he could reconnect with his uh, friend friend that way, sure. uh, which is why he kept using that name. That's such an interesting, that's a message in a, a bottle, it's a message in a show trying to reach this guy. Like, why didn't he just hire a PI or something to go look for this person? <laughs> he wanted to, he's more creative than that. I yeah, think. I guess. I'd like to call out McCoy for one of my favorite scenes in this episode, and what I think is just a great example of McCoy's character, uh, where he initially is checking on Khan when he's in sickbay, and Khan, you know, is resourceful and wily and wakes up, grabs him by the neck and puts a knife up to his neck. And we get one of those moments that I love from McCoy that when he's in danger, he just goes, he's ice cold. Like he's the guy who's always grousing about something. He's always complaining. He doesn't. He's scared of the transporter. But in this and other episodes, like when his life is in danger, like he's immediately like super businesslike, uh, and he's like, uh, "Hey, you know, choke me, stab me, whatever you're gonna do. Let's let's get to it here. Let's, let's come on. What's going on?" And uh, and it kind of saves him with Khan later because Khan's like, "Okay, yeah, you're pretty brave." Yeah, you know, that's what I uh, when I was doing my 25 word summary. That's those are the kinds of things that I was thinking about. Was how. You know, a really good villains exist really to help the hero, right? The, the sure. classic idea of the way that we, we, we do any good story is you the, the stronger the villain, the bigger the challenge, the better your hero, and that you really need to have a, a villain that reveals something about the hero um, in addition to themselves. And, and, and Khan really interacts with all three of them, all three of the main uh, characters, uh, in unique uh, in unique ways, he has his sort of battle of wits with Spock, yes. both uh, at the dinner table um, and also at the uh, at the at the end of the episode. Um, and he has a physical battle and intellectual battle with with Kirk several times in the episode. And he also has uh, his uh, his moment with McCoy too. So I think 
and and in each of those we get we get an idea a, re- a revelation about who the who our favorites are and what they are about and how they deal with the situations that they come up with. I, I love the scene where they're talking about how they could admire him, <laughs> um, even though they despise him. Right? That there's a that that you know what he did was wrong, but that you know that there you, to to accomplish what he accomplished. Um, is is something where you could you could say okay you have to give him credit for that although you know he's reprehensible and so right. um, and, and that he was the best of the tyrants like the nicest of the tyrants <laughs> right uh, yeah. so um uh which is just made even better by you mentioned Greg Cox books those books are just fantastic uh, the, the 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 two and then the the third follow up book that he does um, uh, with Khan on, on SETI Alpha 5. But I think uh, 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 it's just a beautiful uh, reimagining of who Khan was. And I thought it did such a great job. Anybody who loves uh, Space Seed or Wrath of Khan should definitely check out uh, Greg Cox books. Yeah. I want to dig into the character of Khan and especially him being the nicest tyrant. But I wanted to mention first um, that scene that you just mentioned uh, with Spock. Uh, kind of grilling Khan at the dinner. And we were talking about Nick Myron before. That dinner scene reminds me a lot of the dinner scene in Star Trek VI, um, where it seems to be friendly, but there's there's a subtext to the conversation. Like people are maneuvering in this conversation to get people to admit things or to say things um, that you know have to do with their agenda. And Spock is not going to let this guy off the hook. And I like the fact that he essentially gets him, <laughs> to, you know, he, Khan is trying to defend uh, his methods as, uh, well, it's not tyranny, I'm trying to unify humanity. And Spock's got that great line, oh, you're going to unify him like a team of animals. That's great. That, that, that's great. <laughs> and he, really, he really nails him there. And then, of course, Khan points out what's going on, which is that, you know, Kirk's letting his second-in-command kind of maneuver and do all this while Kirk can sit back and watch. And that's the kind of thing that Khan, the nicest dictator, uh, he, can, uh, he can admire that sort of strategy in his opposite in a man that he sees to be kind of like himself. The character of Khan is, is very charismatic, uh, like a tyrant would need to be. And I think the episode really dares you to, to hate him, to not like him. Um, from the moment they pull him out of that space microwave that he's in, when he's on defrost, uh, he's a striking figure, you know, and I think he's perfectly cast uh, as um, as Montalban. And MacGy- MacGyver's is certainly buying what he's selling in this case. You know, they immediately, uh, just from a filmic perspective, they code this as, oh, she's she's into this guy. Like, uh, we, we got to watch out. Yeah, and I think that really is a lot of that is, you know, the relationship, the char- the charisma between Madeline Rue and, and and Ricardo Montalban is is very important to selling this episode because that is when you when you look at the memos and the and the sort of behind the scenes struggle the, a great deal of that struggle was making Marla a believable character she just okay. you know she she needed to be you know they only have fifty one minutes to tell this story yeah. so you can't you can't give her three months to fall in love with him she has to fall in love right. with him instantly right and so um you know how do you do that and how do you do that believably uh the way that they do that is is you know really clever right they make her a history buff so she automatically has an affinity for things of the past and here is literally a man from the past right. and 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 she's dis there, the, the scenes that are edited out between her originally that Mary Jo had spoken about it with um, with Rand, but the scenes that were edited edited out were kind of this idea of 
her that the modern man that she had, she had around her were, were, was never as fascinating to her as men of the past, and that she really liked, she she. So we come the first thing we get to know about her is that men of the of the past hold an attraction for her, and I think that was smart, and also um, having Montalban be there and and to have him be so intelligent and charismatic and and you know and really being what you know what does he want who wh- what is Khan's motivation and and so the Khan and Rathacon is different the Khan and Rathacon is violent he is um uh, um uh, really lost his mind because of the revenge uh that has poisoned his heart and his soul so He's not, you know, his, his when Yalcom tries to get him to see, look, we have a ship. You have defeated Kirk. Um, we can take the ship and go someplace else and start a whole new life. He denies his his people's future right. because of his revenge, Khan. And so and, and, and this madness that he has and this desire that he has, that's very different than the Khan that's in Space Seed. This mm-hmm. Khan that's in Space Seed is very intellectual, very measured. Um, not as quick or prone to, to anger, although he, he does have a temper. Um, and the reason he's doing it is not personal megalomania. He really truly believes that he, him and his people were designed to bring humanity to a better future and that uh, the, the humans who have not uh, been so blessed with the genetic background that he has are not capable of bringing that kind of order. Okay. And so he's, he, he's made that way. You know, he is he's designed and made to be like that, which and Ricardo Montalban um, spoke of that on QVC where he was asked, I believe it was by um, Bob Bowersox, uh, what is it like to play a villain? And Montalban's response is, I don't play a villain. I play a man who does villainous things mm. and that it's circumstances that have brought him to that point. Huh. <laughs> and you really see that the way he plays that in. In space seed, because he he really is um, I, he's not justified, but he but he he's, he has justification to himself. He doesn't he is not walking around going I'm a bad guy. I'm a bad guy. Right. Uh, uh, you know he he isn't delighting in he doesn't delight. He he almost begs them. Not, he doesn't want to hurt anyone. He'll he'll do it. Um, because it's necessary for his plans, but he's literally begging, you know, the, the crew saying, don't you understand what this means? Right. Don't you understand what I'm going to do? Um, <laughs> and, 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 and so that's very different than, than, than Wrath of Khan, which is great because it shows you how that loss, you know, d- destroyed, his, destroyed who he was. That's why I'm hoping we, we, we hope and we pray that, uh, Nicholas Meyer is currently typing and working on this uh this, uh, this con project con show which um you know i i can certainly see as a possibility i think uh cbs is well aware that they have to find um something to you know we got a long it's been a long wait in between discovery episodes here right um but it's going to be even a longer wait in between season one and two. Um, yeah. You know, we had to wait six weeks or seven weeks. Now we're going to have to wait months uh, for the new season and we're going to need Star Trek content. And uh, my hope is that they're, they're going to see this up. Uh, this as an opportunity to do, you know, one-off movies or one-off TV shows or something like that, you know? Yeah. To really do what Star Wars is doing in a way with these anthology films, but do it, 
in the way that's perfect for Star Trek with his anthology TV. Yeah, hook up with Greg Cox and maybe adapt uh, his books there. Oh my yeah. gosh, yeah, yeah. that would be fantastic. I think, and 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 you know, that's why I'm hopeful that that's that's what's going on right now, and that we're you know that because I think Khan is is such a fascinating character, um, and and to see what his life would be like um, as he sort of struggled to build a new world. I think would be just an amazing show. Our characters in the 23rd century have certainly mastered this sort of detachment um, that you've talked about uh, in seeing characters or events from the past, because they certainly, they're very um, admiring of Khan, which I think is um, possibly understandable, but it's weird, especially for this show. Um, And there's this weird detachment from responsibility for all these events that happened in the past, like they look back at this tyrant who was, of course, the nicest tyrant, and they're at, uh, they're admiring him. They also, Spock is talking later about um, the attempts to improve the race through the selective breeding that led to the Supermen, and McCoy's like, oh no, that that wasn't us. That was some scientists long time ago, and Trek hasn't seemed to pick up yet that sense of like, you know, that cultural responsibility. Like, you know, we are. The, the products of our ancestors' successes and failures, and there's things that we're kind of responsible to, they seem to just kind of toss that right off. Like, oh, that's just, that's just other people. It's not us. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I, I think they were, I, I do like how we have this sort of through line in Star Trek that, um, you know, genetic manipulation is illegal. Right. Um, you know, because they they saw what it could do and they always use sort of Khan as the one of the names uh, in <laughs> right. the of names that they mention um, of the people that, you know, you, you want to avoid that kind of, um, uh, you know, that that's sort of a future. Y- you know, it's 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 funny because I think that the Khan um, the Khan character, when you we sort of imagine like what 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 does that mean to be the nicest tyrant? Right. Does that mean that he he wanted to control the world, but he wanted to do it in a way that he he wasn't as violent. He didn't have, you know, camps for people. He he tried to limit, uh, um, you know, collateral damage or civilian casualties or sort of what 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 could that possibly mean? I do wonder whether that line is in there to justify Marla's attraction. In other words, OK. You know, I, 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 that may be part of that problem solving uh, uh, where like, well, look, Con, uh, Kirk and Spock, well, not Spock, but Kirk and McCoy and Scotty, you know, they they respect him um, as as sort of a man to man respect. And so therefore we could sort of see oh, the 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 idea that Marla might also respect him. Right. But it keeps her from straight crushing on Hitler. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Which is just kind of, yeah. I mean, cause otherwise, <laughs> you, you know, you wouldn't know what world it would be. And then there would, there would be, the, there would be no way they could have that ending. Right. I mean, if, if oh yeah, the ending too. Yeah. Yeah. Because that is an unusual ending for sixties TV because there, there very much still was that mentality that, that almost uh, Hayes code idea um, or comic authority code idea that you needed to punish the bad guy needed to be punished at the end of the story. And really, Khan is, but he isn't. Um, he is punished, but he's not punished. He's given what he wants, which is a world to conquer. Right. Um, and uh, and he's given a bride to do it with. And so <laughs> yeah. that's unusual uh, f- uh, very much for TV back then. Yeah, and especially uh, as, he's, as he's going out, his exit line is basically – 
uh, ruling in hell instead of uh, reigning in heaven or whatever. And they're like, yeah, that's cool. And I'm like, yeah, Satan said that. <laughs> like, who are you admiring here? Yeah, it's funny. It's like, yeah, because because you compare that to like, you know, Mission Impossible, which is the companion show, of course, to Star Trek right. made by the same studios and, and people. And, uh, you know, every episode of that show ends with gunshot, you know, as they're walking away, the bad guy gets killed right. or yeah. arrested. I mean, there's never any ambiguity on that show about what happens to the bad guy. Yeah. Um, but Star Trek uh, being maybe a little more sophisticated and less formulaic was willing to play around with the format a little bit. And that I thought that that was really I mean, they did do that when, when you look at like, um, you know, mud, he's a he's a con man, but he's, you know, a lovable con man. Sure, and, sure. you know. Uh, there isn't that the, the the concept of good and evil in Star Trek isn't as defined um, as it is at a lot of other 60s TV shows. And I think that's, again, Roddenberry's kind of genius and the idea that, as Mary Jo was saying, with Enemy Within and those sort of themes of, you know, what, even the Klingons, you know, the Klingons were not entirely despicable on the original show and sure. obviously were likable enough that they emerged as a as a, as a well-loved species. So, um uh, Star Trek really did that well, and I think Khan's probably a good example of that. Although, again, we look at it now and we go, you know, gosh, um, wh- why would Marla go with him? He's such an abusive person, or or he's a bad guy, and 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 he is a bad guy. Oh yeah, but um, but in that in that sort of um, Roddenberry way. Yeah, and as a show, Star Trek would certainly come down. It would it would roundly condemn fascism and tyranny. Um, later on, especially in episodes like Patterns of Force. And Kirk, as a captain, has no time for tyrants or bullies, um, you know, over the course of the show. Um, but when you have a guy like Khan, who is there at dinner, he's going full alt-right before the salad course comes out. Like, I just wonder why the show gives him so much latitude. Uh, and I think it has a lot to do with, you know, with having this powerful character played by a powerful actor. And by having him, I think that I, that, that concept of, you know, if he's going to be a mirror to Kirk and and you do wonder, you know, had Kuhn stayed with the show or the show gone a fourth season or whatever, would they have made their own sequel? Cause they certainly did sequels. Wasn't there a line to that didn't make it to air? That's something to the, to the effect of like, wow, I hope, I hope we don't see that guy again. Yeah. They, well, there was, interestingly, there was a lot of concern over the use of the word seed oh. um, because of the, connotation that 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 he was going off with a girl oh and, well, and sort of you know, you know right. where that's going right so um <laughs> i didn't and, i didn't get was, that but okay <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I would never have thought of that myself but the, that's actually in the memos where they're like well you know you know you might so they really do a linguistic feet there where they make sure that you understand they're talking about an agricultural <laughs> metaphor um son and of Khan, right yeah no other kind of metaphor and so you know they're, they're they they had to dance with that ending a lot and and sort of how to how to do that and and how to show that there is a you know so, some punishment but not really and right. and and uh, that, that was a that, but that was initially the conception the the original idea was that he would be kind of stranded um sure. and and left in the left in the modern world because that's just a fascinating idea wilbur had a great premise what would happen if somebody from 500 years ago came into the 1960s right you know what would their life be like 
Uh, yeah, the Encino Man of 60s sci-fi. Um, exactly. As we start to wrap up here, um, were there any scenes or moments uh, or specific characters that you haven't mentioned yet that really st- stood out for you in this episode? Well, you know, I, I certainly would have loved to have seen more of Ker- Khan with his own people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because uh, really both Wrath of Khan and Space Seed are dependent on that, but we don't really get to see that much. We get to see more of that in Wrath of Khan. Um, where we get to see some interaction there. Um, but in many ways he's, he's older than, you know, it's almost like they're all the kids of the other people, you know? Um, but, uh, uh, you know, my favorite, my favorite moment in the whole episode is the dinner sequence. I love that because that's just raw acting. I mean, I think that's always a dangerous thing. And, 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 and Nicholas Meyer is great at that. He, he writes a great scene in, in Star Trek Four where they're basically – I mean that should be the death kneel of any film, right? It would be sitting in a pizza place for 10 minutes um, <laughs> talking to one another. But because they're such good actors and the dialogue is so good and and it's charming and funny, that's a great scene. Or in Star Trek VI, you know, a motion picture by definition should be in motion. Right. And instead they're all sitting there and – but yet it's, as you were saying, brilliantly – um, directed and written and acted. And, and I feel that same way about this, this scene in, um, space seed where they're sitting around and they're, it's really a battle. There's so much subtext in that scene and it's really, it's a fight that's even better than the fight at the end because, um, they're doing it with their brains. Right. Yeah. I think, um, Uhura has a great moment in this episode, um, where they're in the uh, briefing room and they're trying to get her to, um, I can't remember specifically what they want her to do, but uh, something with the computer and 60s politics or sexual politics or no, like Joaquin just belts her right right off the bat. And she looks up and it, you can tell that that hit has had no effect on whether she is going to do what they want her to do. She's not going to do it. And he can just keep doing, keep hitting her, but it's not going to change anything. That's a great, I mean, you know, she did so much, uh, really was so with with so little screen time you know uh, per episode um because again the way that the tv was structured then with the three you know main characters and that sort of thing but that is one of the best moments for her i love that moment i love the moment when she's underneath the console um in a different episode and she's working on the console and spock's like you can handle it you know yeah um i i love when she teases spock i mean the idea of Spock and Uhura together in the the new movies makes perfect sense when you look at some of the interactions that Spock and Uhura have in the original show. And she comes up and she sort of teases him, you know, like, you know, do people on your planet do this, you know, and right. and uh, and they sing together, you know, and, she, you know, they have musical relationship with one another so that that Spock has this kind of respect for Uhura. I think um, shows you what an incredible character she, she is. And Nichelle Nichols, just the way she'll say a line like, you know, neither, you know, <laughs> she's like right. fair and, a, you know, a lady, neither, you know, I just, she's so great. And uh, that was a wonderful moment that you picked out because she is as defi- defiant with a single look as 10 pages of dialogue could have given her. Yeah. I also like Khan's calisthenics or his yoga or whatever he's doing before he uh, wrenches the door open. <laughs> it's got a little bit of that 
kind of mysteries of the Orient, like 60s soft racism thing going on. But, you know, he, he's really strong and he, he rips a door open. I do that every morning. Oh, when I you get have up. to. Right. That's how I stretch. <laughs> when, I get, when, when I get out of bed, I go, mm, and that's how I stretch in the morning. I do my con. Uh, it works. I mean, it, I can't rip a door open, but it, uh, whatever he's doing, he was doing right. There's some isometrics there. Yeah. Uh, something else I thought was cool, and this might be a bit of a stretch. Maybe this is my crackpot theory for the episode. But when Khan and Kirk fight in engineering after he crushes Kirk's phaser, and you have to do a lot of yoga before you can pull that off, um, Kirk beats him by, well, he, he beats him with this stick thing that he pulls out of the engineering console that we never see again on the show. And to me, and maybe I'm crazy, but it reminded me of a belaying pin. Which is an old style, on an old style ship, you know, there are these things called belaying pins for sailing vessels, basically, where it's a stick that you, you know, you tie the rigging to. But if you get into a fight and you're a sailor that doesn't have a fancy sword like the captain uh, and you're being boarded, you could grab one of these things and boom, instant nightstick. And the fight between Khan and Kirk, or I should say Khan and Kirk's stunt doubles, Gary Combs and Chuck Couch, you can really tell it's them on the remasters and the long shots. Uh, The fight doesn't have any real thematic significance, except Kirk does win because he knows his ship better than Khan. You know, he's a sailor. And I bet those club things weren't in the schematics. No, you know, it's funny. That is, uh, you know, you see so much uh, of the design. I mean, even the, the, in that episode, the, the chamber that Kirk is put into. I mean, it's it, the, the, the window of that is, you know, is a porthole. Right. Um, and the way that, we, I mean, we, they, they refer to the original conception when Mary Jo was talking about him being, uh, uh, the original idea was that Kirk was going to be put in a space suit and then put into space and then slowly denied air. Right. And that was too expensive. And so, um, and they didn't have spacesuits designed at that time uh, when they were writing the script. And so um, uh, the idea of putting him in sort of this, uh, the decompression chamber, um, all of that, the, just the language of it, the, the, the keel hauling and all of that is so nautical yeah. um, and really shows, you know, Roddenberry's uh, Horatio Hornblower connection and, and Matt Jeffries and his love of naval vessels and, and the real world military experience that all those guys brought. I mean, Kuhn... You know, Kuhn had, you know, two tours, uh, World War Two and in Korea. Um, and uh, and, uh, you know, he a lot of the anti-war themes of Star Trek uh, come out of Kuhn, um, you know, who who's the guy who comes up with the prime directive, uh, who comes up with the Klingons. Uh, it's all Kuhn. I mean, Kuhn really should be on the Mount Rushmore. So we got to do it. Do have to add <laughs> another face. Um, but he the, a lot of the anti-war stuff in Star Trek is Roddenberry and Kuhn together um, because they saw it in real life. Yeah. And, uh, and so the the idea of the, the sort of real life creeping in and the designs of the ships and stuff like that, that's all the, what those guys were really able to bring to that show. And I think I remember reading it. It might've been in one of your articles. um, The fact that in the original treatment or script draft by Wilbur, it was a little too militaristic. Kirk was a little too clipped in sort of his delivery. And they had to explain to him, no, Kirk is, you know, he's a guy who can relate to his subordinates and stuff. But that that sort of military flavor, I think, still exists in the into the finished product of this episode. Yeah, I've always, you know, I've, I, we've, we've interviewed some uh, military fans over the course of our research. And, and uh, just to try to understand 
you know, Star Trek a little bit because there's always that debate, you know, is it the military? Is it not the military? And, you know, Roddenberry, we have all of his memos uh, about Wrath of Khan and his thoughts on Wrath of Khan, which are just brilliant. And one day we really have to um, share what's in there um, <laughs> uh, because they're just incredible. I mean, it, and it's funny because he in those he he doesn't care. I mean, he cares about the kind of like nitpicky stuff that fans care about, but he understands that sometimes you have to throw that out the door for a good story. Sure. He was very much more concerned about like the heart of the characters and making sure the science, you know, worked and that there was a logic to the story and and the spirit of it. He was very concerned about that. So I think, you know, Roddenberry really understood that the, those those kinds of ideas and you see that in the original show and you see that in I think in, in anybody who kind of tries to adhere to that Roddenberry vision, but he was insistent in those memos that mil- Starfleet is not military. Right. And, and, but it has some of the trappings of the military as an organizational structure. Yeah. And I, and the more and more fans we talk to, the more and more we get that if we want to understand Star Trek, you have to understand the Coast Guard because the Coast Guard has, Every one of the missions of the crew of the Enterprise is the mission of the Coast Guard. They are a rescue agency. They are an exploratory agency. They do scientific research uh, on the natural and, 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 and social worlds and everything, just like they do on Star Trek. And, of course, if needed, they're called in for military service. So they, it, it, although Star Trek sort of feels like the Navy, per se, uh, it's a little more closer specifically to the Coast Guard. That's fascinating. I wanted to ask you before we go, uh, early in the in, in some of the early script drafts, there's this idea of the criminal, you know, whatever his name is, kind of hiding who he is and tr- trying to hide the fact that he's this criminal from uh, an earlier time, which doesn't really quite survive down to what we actually get in the episode. Do, do you remember when that sort of got dropped from? Um, from a focus in the script? Yeah, you know, uh, there's, there is a, the, the memos by um, Kuhn, the early September memos to Wilbur. So, because Wilbur is still the script writer at that point. Right. And um, the, it, w- one of the things that he kind of uh, uh, discusses is this idea that, you know, this concept of the, w- when Wilbur sets up the world of the 1990s in the outline, um, it's a dystopian world where we have had this war and um he even has a great line in there where um he says um i had written it i had written it down because i love that line oh penalties are no weapons against despair yeah so (laughs) there are so many people that are that are that are so hungry that you know a lot of people are criminals so what they what they do is they create these argosies um where they put criminals into these sleeper ships and they send them off for 15, uh, 1500 year journey to a planet called SETI two. Um, and so what's, what's, what's interesting about that is the concept of, well, let's free the planet of these criminals because we don't have enough resources. And what, 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 um, Kuhn argues back to Wilbur is if they don't have the resources, they do not have the money to send people into space. I can see that. Right. Yeah. So, the idea of him being a criminal and that this is a criminal sleeper ship, um, that kind of starts to be weed, weeded out in that first draft uh-huh. um, that Kuhn does because it's still in the draft except that what they do is they made him like a super important criminal 
Sure. And one that had controlled a port of the part of the earth and like it's more like an escape type of a vessel and that kind of thing. Okay. Um, but it's still a criminal sleeper ship in Wilbur's version. When you get to Kuhn, Kuhn's the one that really starts stripping that away. Just from a logic point of view, you can see he doesn't like that right away. Huh. Originally, it's more akin to the historical practice of transportation, although it's a different kind of transportation than we're used to on Star Trek. Yeah, it's basically an Australian, you know, the idea was concept like they're creating an Australia uh, in space and it's a penal colony right. and we're going to just send people there and, um, you know, you sleep for 1500 years and then the, the Botany Bay, there's a problem with the ship and, it, and the people start waking up 500 years and there's a mutiny on the ship and uh, only this Henderson guy survives right. and so it's this, it would have, that alone would have been very expensive if they were going to film it. Yeah, and, now, and really kind of chunky as far as the, the script structure is concerned. Absolutely, yeah. Khan's not even really trying to hide who he is all that much. I mean, there, there's a bit when he wakes up in sickbay and he's a little cagey about giving his name, but he eventually does. And when he does, I guess he doesn't know what time period is in he's in, but did he think nobody was going to remember the name Khan or like look him up? It's like a guy with a tiny little mustache wakes up in sickbay. Can we ask your name? <laughs> um, Hitler uh, got, got a first name. No, no, just Hitler. I mean, that's not going to last long. Yeah. I have always wondered whether or not when he says his name, uh, he expects a reaction kind of like, oh, Khan, like you're great, you know, <laughs> okay. like we love you, <laughs> sure. like boy, you know, because he has this megalomaniac, right? He has that element of himself yeah. that's right into him, right, where he's superior. Okay. And then he kind of real, real fast gauges it and says, you know, when he says, that's it, Khan, and then sort of. You know, Khan's like, well, this isn't going like I think. So, yeah, it's just it's just Khan. That's all you need to know for now. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, that whole idea of hiding the identity is is uh, yeah, obviously much more important to into darkness. Um, and just a slight echo uh, in in this, but there's a lot of that in the original Wilbur idea of him trying to hide. He's trying to hide that they're criminals. Yeah. Not so much who he was because he was just kind of a regular old criminal when he was um, uh, uh, Erickson at the, the very first version. Sure. But he's but he's trying to hide that they're criminals and that they killed the crew. Yeah. And 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 what he, he his goal is to kind of get to this Henderson who's kind of out of it, um, but alive in in the sick bay uh, before he can tell them that they're criminals because he wants to, you know, be set free. Sure. And so. That's where that whole sort of secrecy thing comes from. And really, you don't get much of that in the final version. Yeah. Well, this is this is a classic episode. We've talked about the ways that ideas can get kicked around and modified and changed, the ways things that could have gone differently. But it's amazing to see what a strong vision the writers and creators of Trek had, even this early on, that they could deliver an episode and a character like Khan that would prove so enduring. Oh, it's a, you know, it's a, such an you know, if you if you strip everything away and take away Wrath of Khan and 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 everything else, it's just a great episode. I mean, it deals with what in the '60s was a, a very um, uh, uh, kind of a breakthrough idea of idea of genetics. I mean, you know, of course, people were talking about eugenics back in the '20s through selective breeding, you know, right. but the idea of sort of going in and messing around with you know, DNA and that sort of thing is, is, you know, really at the Star Trek's dealing with a very imaginative idea at that time. And, 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 and the way that, you know, it's a good action adventure story. It's a good intellectual battle. It, it, it's a great challenge for Kirk and the crew and, and it's a great bottle show and shows you, um, a lot about the, about our main characters, 
uh, whether it's Uhura, like you had mentioned, or Spock or, or McCoy, through Khan. I think that's a great, really great episode for that reason. Yeah, I agree. Well, let's talk My Space Dad Can Beat Up Your Space Dad. Who's your favorite captain and why? Star Trek is like pizza. There's no such thing <laughs> as bad pizza. No bad pizza, no bad Star Trek. Diplomatic. If I had to choose uh, which captain, I would say Kirk, uh, not because I think he's a better captain, but because of my emotional attachment to him being my first captain okay. uh, and him leading me into the world of Star Trek. But I love them all. I mean, Cisco, every single one of them, Janeway has Archer. They all have um, traits that I admire, and I, I think they are all great hero characters. I mean, I, I love Janeway. Um, I think she's such a great character, and I would have loved to have seen her in a do. I would love to have seen a Voyager film and her in a movie. I mean, just with a a big budget and a and a great you know action adventure story like that, and just because she's so great. Um, but uh, you know, that's mine is Kirk, Mary Jo. I have the same thought, but not pizza, but chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say Picard. If I had to put on, a, you know, if I was putting on a show to watch, I'd, I'd always choose. I always gravitate to TNG, but I like them all. Well, now that we've reached the end of this show, you will both receive a commission and the rank of ensign. What department on the ship do you work in? Science. Yeah, I scientists. We'd like to be sociologists. So the sociologists. Social scientists. Yeah, social scientists. So we can get left behind on all the planets like they <laughs> right. they do. On every, every time they have a sociologist on Star Trek, they leave them on the planet. Yeah. I always like when they have a, oh, it's our 20th century expert, uh, like like in this episode. and Or like on, um, <laughs> it always manifests itself like uh, Tom Paris on Voyager. He likes the 20th century, so he's into like F-150s and Dr. Pepper and stuff like that. And maybe this is past the sophistication of writing for a 60s um, sci-fi TV show, but I want to see that dramatic irony of like what she thinks it's supposed to be like. Like we get in Star Trek Four, where she's like, well, clearly they ride pogs, you know, to their slap bracelet factory or something like that. And they don't have it quite right. <laughs> yeah, that would be hilarious, right? That is, That would be great. Well, Ensign's John and Mary Jo, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Uh, best place is probably Twitter, just um, at Tenuto Family, and uh, we share that account. So uh, we'd love to talk with anybody uh, through there and uh, chit-chat about Star Trek. Great. And you wrote a multi-part series on the development of this episode for StarTrek.com. Yes. In fact, a little bit of uh, news uh, coming up, uh, hopefully sometime this year. We are going to be doing uh, a group of articles taking a look at um, the characters of Mud and uh, uh, Layla and um, the Romulan commander uh, in a series of articles for Star Trek.com where, where the characters originally started. And uh, we were able to talk to DC Fontana about it. And we're really, really excited about sharing how different the characters were when they were originally created and uh, to eventually become the characters that we all love. Sort of a guest star um, you know, famous guest uh, character type of a series. So that's coming up uh, hopefully sometime this year. And people can get you on the series, The Toys That Made Us, streaming now on Netflix. They're going to be doing two uh, two seasons of four episodes, uh, two part A and part B of the season. Um, they're going to do four episodes and four episodes. The first four will include an episode about Star Wars, and we're in that episode. And then the second four, which should be sometime in 2018, early 2018, there's an entire episode about Star Trek. 
and a, a big, deep, deep dive into the Mego toy <laughs> line. Yeah. Um, and we're going to be in that one as well. And uh, they're really great. It's a really great show where they're taking a look at the famous toy lines like Barbie and Star Trek and Star Wars and Transformers and He-Man. And they're really ta- they're talking to the people who created the toys, to the actors who the toy represents, to um, you know s- sometimes social scientists like ourselves uh, uh, and fans and um, who share their collection. And it's a really loving. Um, intelligent, really great, fun documentary um, where they they really take a deep look at what these toys, how they were made and what they mean to us. And we're very excited about the Star Trek episode and the Star Wars episode, um, particularly because we think the Star Trek toys, um, they're really great. I mean, they've, they've played a role even in the uh, in the episodes themselves. So uh, they're, you know, we, we always think of collectibles as the wedding rings of of being a fan, you know, it's, 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 it's our physical connection to this, to this f- fictional place. And, um, so we're really excited about that and we hope that, uh, fellow fans check out the show. Sure. Will we get a look at your collection on the show? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. We're, they filmed us in, yeah, they filmed uh, us in front of our Star Trek uh, collection and also our Star Wars collection. We, uh, we, uh, we get to share some of our favorites, uh, and um, include uh, we, we, we I don't know if we made the cut, but we talked about the marshmallow dispenser <laughs> from Craft. Uh, uh, so, um, but uh, we uh, we had a lot of fun, and uh, and it was great. We um, one of the one of the fun moments was uh, the one of the uh, people making the films is friends with uh, uh, Martha Hackett, and uh, we of course had Seska action figures, and so uh, we made a little video for her. Uh, and he sent it to her. So that was great. <laughs> That's neat. Well, thanks again for joining me on the show. Thank you. Thank you. And we are signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. It's on your mind.